You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. The parable from Matthew 20 that we read in today's Gospel reading was part of Jesus' answer to a series of economic questions that occurred in chapter 19. So we have to go back a little bit to kind of see where this parable came from. The first question was proposed by the rich young man in verse 16 of chapter 19. Um, a lot of you are probably already familiar with this story. He's, he's a wealthy young man who comes to Jesus, and he says, Teacher, what must I do, what good deeds must I do to have eternal life? And you may not initially think of this as an economic question, because most of the time we think of economics, we think of money. But it really is, because economics isn't just about money. It's about the allocation of resources of any sort and how people use them to get what they want or need. And he recognized that he needed salvation. This young man was on the right track because he recognized that he needed salvation. And he thought that good deeds, perhaps, if he could do the right things, that this was what he could use to, to earn or get that, that salvation. Um, and another reason I think of this as an economic question is because there's a, a popular book uh, about economics called Freakonomics that applies economic principles to all sorts of, of things in daily life. Um, and they put it this way about what economics. They say morality represents what we think people should do, the way we think the world should work. And economics is the study of how it actually works. And so the young man actually came and he had a, a fairly good grasp of morality. When he asked Jesus, when Jesus asked him, you should, you should keep the law, he said, which ones? And Jesus listed to him several of the Ten Commandments. He listed these laws. And the young man said to him, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. He had a good grasp on what he was supposed to do. And Jesus looked at him and said, one thing you lack. Give up everything that you own and come follow me. And this is where he grew sad, because he was wealthy. And Jesus, of course, could see into his heart and see the attachment that he had to his wealth. And that he wasn't yet ready to follow Jesus. He wasn't ready to give up everything. It's a question of worth, a value, an economic question. Is it worth giving up everything? Is it worth giving up my resources and my money in order to be able to, um, to follow Jesus? Is what I gain in return worth it? And the young man at that moment went away sad. He wasn't willing to pay the cost that was asked of him. The Jesus' disciples must have been watching the interaction because he turned to them and then said, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he said the famous phrase that I think, again, it's a line that many people know from the Gospels, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished because they saw wealth as a sign of God's blessing and God's favor, and they thought if, if the wealthy do not have the favor of God, the wealthy cannot come into God's kingdom, who can and so they actually asked a better question than the young man. But it is another, in a sense, it's another economic question. How do we get this thing of value? They asked who then could be saved. If it can't be this young man who has kept the law according to his own words and who is wealthy and blessed with God's blessing, who can be saved? And that allowed Jesus to give them an answer that... Uh, flip things around, perhaps, from what they understood and the way that we typically understand. Because, well, in the kingdom of heaven, in the economy of the kingdom of heaven, 
Rich or poor makes no difference. For the economy is based on grace. And Jesus tells the disciples that with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. None of us can make an exchange for salvation. None of us can come to God and just give up something that is going to bring us salvation. None of us, with the blessings that we have, or the suffering that we take on, none of it earns salvation. But with God, all things are possible. With God, we can have salvation, but it's a salvation that is given through grace. And of course, among the disciples, it's fairly often when, when Jesus says something that's challenging, he says something that's hard for them to understand, Peter's the one who speaks up because he doesn't quite get it. Um, he opens his mouth and immediately inserts his foot. Uh, he still wants to talk about what kind of transaction has occurred. He wants to say, um, when he looks at the rich young ruler, he says, well, he wasn't willing to give up everything to follow you. He says, but we gave up everything. So what are we going to get? What's the reward that we're going to get because we gave up everything? Um, and what I always find surprising about Jesus, and, and Peter's questions in particular, is that he does not dismiss his question. In fact, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus tells his disciples they're supposed to count the cost. He doesn't tell them that this is a bad question to ask. What do we get if we give up salvation? This is actually a valid question. It's a good question. And But he says to them a sketched picture of their reward. He says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or fathers, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But he ends with a clarification, in case Peter is confused, and the rest of the disciples are confused. In case they think that this is just reinforcing that transactional nature of grace, he tells them, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then he tells the parable that we read today to clarify what he means by that. A landowner goes early in the morning to the marketplace to find workers for his fields. Uh, not only would this have been the best time to get workers all day, the most physically impressive workers are typically there in the morning because they would get snatched up by other, other people, so it's a practical time to go. This, there's nothing surprising about this in, in the first century. Um, and from a business perspective, he'd probably like to hire all the labor he needs for the whole day so that he's got paying the minimum number of workers since he's paying them all a denarius, wants to get everybody into his land, get them harvesting his grapes, um, and, and get that, um, that process started. But this landowner keeps coming back to the field. And so there's a couple of options here, and, and it's not really clear from the story what's happening. Either he miscalculated, he finds out that he actually needs more labor than he thought. And so he keeps on coming back to get more labor. But I think that the, the story, the clue that it gives us at the end, tells us that something a little bit different is going on. The, the people who are left hanging around as he's coming back um, would have been among the most vulnerable people in society because they're depending upon this wage for their daily bread. They need to work. They're not there because they, they want to. They're there because they need work. And if they've been passed over in the morning, the, the longer and longer that things go during the day, the more and more likely it is that they are going to be overlooked, that they're not going to have what they need for that day. And the landowner, in his generosity, with his gift of resources, keeps on coming back 
And it kind of implies in the way that the story is told that eventually he gathers everybody who's left and just says, come work on my land. And it's an act, an intentional act of generosity. He's not specifying wages after the first round, but he is promising work, he's promising labor. And they probably would have expected some proportion of the full day's wage. The denarius was the full day's wage, that's what they had agreed to, the initial people, and they're expecting they get some portion of that, some smaller, some smaller amount. But um, in this case, he's generous, of course. This is, this is the way that the story flips the expectations of the disciples around on their head, is that he gives them all a full day's wage. And truthfully, most of us can probably relate to the complaints and the grumbling of the first workers. If the same thing were to happen in the company that we worked for, if everyone got the same pay, no matter how much they worked, um, then we would probably grumble as well. And I know that I would have that inclination. Um, in the real world, here, in a business sense, it's not a practical way to run a company. Both just from a financial perspective of allocating resources, and from a sense of maintaining goodwill among your employees. We wouldn't just give everybody the exact same wage, no matter what job they had, no matter what role they had, no matter how many hours they worked. Um, Nathan and Christine might appreciate that if you paid all of us the exact same amount of money, gave us all, all the same salary um, while they're part-time and I'm full-time, but I don't think that the, the church would stay afloat for very long in that case. Um, but it's because the example that Jesus is giving is not an economy based on business sense. It's an economy based on grace. Because the economy of the kingdom of heaven is based on grace. The first workers in the story naturally thought that they were earning their wages. I mean, that is, after all, how labor generally works. We go to work for some period of time and every week, and we expect to get a paycheck at the end of our pay period. Um, but based on the actions in the rest of the story and the attitude of this landowner, I don't think he was hiring workers simply because he out of need. Throughout the whole story, the, I, the impression that we get is that he's hiring people out of generosity. He's hiring people out of a desire to have them be provided for. And even the work that they're given is an act of grace. And what the, the first people who are hired don't realize at the time that it happens, is that their hiring is just as much an act of grace as the people who were hired one hour before the end of the day. Their hiring is just as much an act of grace as the people who were hired at the end of the day. And this is important for the Israelites to know. This principle is repeated when, when throughout the New Testament as they talk about the Gentiles and the, and the Jews and God's desire to show mercy upon all. The Jews were selected so that they could be a blessing to the nations. But their selection was still an act of grace. And if they got it into their heads that they were earning it, that somehow their labor meant that they had earned what God was giving, and everybody else was, was grafted in out of grace, then it was completely flipped wrong about how they understood the kingdom. This is in part the problem that Jonah has in our Old Testament reading. He thinks that the Israelites have, have a special place as God's covenant people, and that they deserve God's grace. He's angry at God that people who have been sinners, who have, been, who have done awful things, who have destroyed nations, who have killed people, might be offered the same grace that they received. And he grumbles against God and says, this isn't fair, and this isn't right. But what he has to understand is that Israel was called by grace just as much as, 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 as the Ninevites. 
This is consistent throughout the entire Bible. Through the Old Testament, we keep on seeing the Israelites as the people who fumble, who don't live up to the calling they've been giving, who don't follow God faithfully, who turn away, and God again and again shows mercy and grace upon them. And this is, of course, true for us. If we think in some way that through our life, through our actions, we have earned God's favor, that we are just getting wages for what we have owned. We can be recalled back to Romans where we say the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we receive our just wages, we receive only death. But God does not deal in an economy of desserts, of giving us what we deserve. He deals in an economy of grace, showing grace to all. This means we can't earn more by our labor. We can't somehow do more things, be more faithful, tithe more, give more, sacrifice more, suffer more, to somehow earn more of God's blessing upon us. God gives everything we have out of a gift of grace. And we have to keep this in mind with all of our dealings with God and with the world, that the economy of the kingdom is an economy based on grace. And it also requires some changes of thought from how we kind of normally interact with, with our economic systems. We can be accustomed to thinking of a gift given freely is somehow suspect. That perhaps it's just not as good as we thought, and that's why they're giving it out for free. Um, but this weekend after church, I'm going to go up to Steamboat Springs with my family. My mom has a, a timeshare that she's actually bought out of, but it's in the declining phase where she can still go there for a couple of years. Um, and, uh, and it's kind of ironic with timeshares, you have to buy into them, but you also have to buy out of them. Um, because, and, and if you've been participated in any sort of timeshare, um, one of the things that you will uh, recognize is that they like to do these sales pitches where they ask you to come and like sit through a 90 minute presentation and then they're going to give you a coupon for like a free voucher for a free hotel stay or a, a cheap hotel stay at some, you can use at some other later date. Um, and let me tell you, just in case you haven't interacted with them before, it's a trap. Um, it's a trap. So they get you there, and they're going to use high-pressure sales tactics while you're there. They're, they're using that offer of a free gift to draw you in so that they can get you to spend more money, hopefully. Um, and, and oftentimes, the, then the free thing that you get in return comes with so many restrictions about when you can use it. You know, on the second Tuesday of a new moon, in years that are prime, or something like that, then it's not actually useful for you as a family to be able to figure out when they're gonna use it. So you end up with this free voucher that just expires, but you've wasted an afternoon of your vacation listening to somebody talk. Um, and we can be, if we're not careful, we can be suspicious with the way that God offers his grace freely to us. As is, as is somehow the fact that God gives, us to, gives it to us freely cheapens it, and makes it less valuable. But it's not. Jesus painted that picture for the disciples of what he's giving. He's giving salvation. He's giving true life. He's giving eternal life. He is giving everything we need. The gift that God gives is good. And it's enough. And it's given freely. And we have to understand and look back and recognize that that mindset that tells us that because it's free, it's somehow cheap, isn't, isn't right. And the same thing is true about the fact that it's offered to everybody. I mean, in our culture, we can sometimes speak a little bit pejoratively of participation trophies, as if, if everybody gets a trophy, now it makes it not as valuable because it was given to everybody freely. But in the kingdom of God, everything is given by grace. 
And the fact that he gives the gift to all, that he offers the gift to all, does not in any way cheapen the gift itself. It's still of infinite value. Nothing could be more important. Paul understood this um, when, in our reading from Philippians that we had today, he uh, said that it was better for him to go be with Jesus right away. He understood the reward that he was working to to be more valuable than everything, including his own life. Do we understand the value of what we're given? Even though it's given to us freely, it is of infinite value. And it's worth giving up everything to obtain. It can be hard, I think, when we sacrifice and suffer to really truly believe that. And in particular, it can be hard to believe that the God who is giving us this gift is wholly good. I think that's one of the greatest challenges when we sit under suffering for a long time. Is to really and truly believe that God is good. And this is part of what Jesus came to his life and his death and his resurrection to show us, to remind us over and over again that God is good. Take heart. His gifts are always good, always generous, always enough. That doesn't mean that we don't need help or we don't need resources or that that's just going to make the suffering go away. Quite contrary. But it means we can endure. We can deal with it for a long time because we know that what we are being given is good, wholly good, and it's given to us freely. A second difference in an economy based on grace is that we can eliminate a scarcity mindset. And this is actually a pretty big departure from traditional economics. In fact, sometimes economics is called the science of scarcity. It's how we allocate limited resources. I've got to make a choice. Do I want to get a cookie or a coffee? Which one am I going to actually spend money on today? Um, and we are accustomed to making decisions in that way. And that can lead to fear. That can encourage us to have fear that somehow if others get the gift, that's going to take away from what we are given. But it doesn't. It was certainly an issue for the first workers in the parable. They received a fair wage, but grumbled because they somehow felt that, that what they were getting was diminished by it being given out to others. Um, and but this tendency to compare to look at others and feel like if they get it, it is going to somehow diminish what we have, all it does is steal joy and the gift that we're given. It steals the celebration of what we've been given in Christ. My family has uh, challenges with this sometimes. Um, probably any of you who have had kids have had experiences where you pull out a dessert, and no matter how much you try to allocate an even amount to each person, everybody aims and starts looking around at what everybody else has to make sure that what they've gotten is a fair portion. We have resorted at times to pulling out the kitchen scale and measuring out ice cream and bread. So we would say, we have exactly the same quantity. doesn't matter that it's not in the same container. I have measured it down to the gram, and I promise that you have the exact same amount. Um, uh, so in the Old Testament, um, that, that's again, we can look to Jonah and see what it looks like to see that, where he felt that somehow Again, that if, he looked, if Nineveh was given grace, that it somehow cheapened what Israel had. That it somehow was almost like grace was a limited offer, and God could give only so much of it. If he gave it to somebody else, that Israel's was, was somehow diminished. And of course, that's not the case. There is no scarcity in the kingdom of God, because it's an economy based on grace. And God's grace is limitless. It knows no end. So, 
if we truly believe this, if we truly believe that this is the way the economy of the kingdom works, that it's a kingdom, it's an economy based on grace, and that it is limitless in supply, it can change how we interact with the world. Because we can interact with the world from a fundamental place of generosity, mirroring what God has given to us. We can show mercy to those whom perhaps it's not our inclination to show mercy. To those whom the world would not show mercy. We can preach the good news of God's forgiveness to our enemies. Because the grace that God has given us will not be diminished if we extend that offer to them. I challenge you all to lean into this reality. First through prayer. We are in the middle of a contentious election season. There's going to be increasing animosity and vitriol and the fact that now there needs to be a decision on whether or not the current president is going to select a Supreme Court judge is not going to make things any better. Um, it's just going to get, get harder for people. And so I encourage you to pray for politicians who are involved in this election. Pray for political groups and movements with whom you disagree. Maybe even those that stir up a sense of fear or that you find yourself leaning towards hatred. Advocate for them before the Father. Ask God to have mercy upon them. Ask God to turn their hearts to Him. Pray that they would know the goodness and the generosity of God and that they would come to join His kingdom. Don't only pray for peace in our country. That's good to pray for. Absolutely. Continue to pray for peace. Don't only pray for justice. That's good to pray for. Continue to pray for justice. But pray that all of these people and groups would know the mercy and grace of God. Pray for them by name. Pray for President Donald Trump. Pray for Joe Biden. Pray for Black Lives Matters protesters. Pray for police officers. Pray for all of them and ask that God extends to them his mercy. This can be our hope as a people of God, is that where others look and divide groups into us and them, into in and out, into enemy and friend, we can instead say God's grace is big enough for all. And it is our fervent desire that all would come to know his mercy, all would come to know salvation, all would come to him. Pray that they become our brothers and sisters in Christ, or if they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, if they know Jesus, pray that they live into that reality. And it's hard at times to ask for mercy upon those whom you look at as the enemy, upon those who you look at as the other, upon those who have hurt you or hurt your family. And yet this is what we can do because of the economy of the kingdom. The economy of the kingdom is an economy based on grace, Limitless grace, the grace of Christ that he has showed up to us through his death on the cross. So we can pray for others. And I think that as we pray for them, as we fervently pray and hope for their salvation, that it will also change the way that we interact with them. That we can be people of peace in a country that is divided, in a city that is divided. We can be ambassadors of Christ in all places where God's grace feels like it can't quite reach because we know that it's limitless and that he calls us to give to all freely, as he gave. Because he gave his son for the whole world. And we're ambassadors of that message.
ambassadors of that hope. So I call you to live into that. As people of prayer and as people of peace, looking for places and ways that you can tell the message of God's economy, an economy based on grace, on forgiveness, on mercy, where God is not limited at all. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. To learn more about us, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.